This is the Marching Health Audio Experience. I'm doing well. I'm actually, I'm doing, doing pretty well, you know, as well as can be expected, I suppose, with all of this stuff going on. But, uh, you know, you learn to uh, live in whatever, whatever the world is throwing at you, right? Yeah, and just adjust. I think I was talking about this yesterday with Matt Harlock, you know, we're, we're used to taking different curved pathways when, you know, when someone kind of throws us off. We're used to that, but I think at this point, it's like a stamina thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I just realized I was wearing my AirPods and uh, they weren't connected at all. <laughs> so basically they were just like white earrings. I disconnected them. Hopefully this sounds better. Can you hear me? It sounds the same. Oh, it does. Oh, great. <laughs> so they make absolutely no difference. Like I want to wear mine too. Do I sound okay? No, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. Yeah, no worries at all. One. Um, what's the weather like in San Francisco? It is sunny and I think probably mid to upper fifties right now. Really? Because nice. I will be there tomorrow. And you were going to tell me this when? Now. <laughs> Tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah. Well, we fly in, but we're going to go um, visit my brother in Antioch. Gotcha. Gotcha. Meet the new baby. Like oh, that's so exciting. That's right. Uncle. How many times have you been an uncle now? This is the fourth. Yeah. Fourth. Mm-hmm. I, I've done it nine times. Nine? Nine, yeah. I have three siblings. And so between them, they have nine kids. Wow. Yep. And I love being an uncle. Yeah. And uh, just handing those babies right back over. Oh, <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, <laughs> noises. <laughs> right. There's fluids of some sort happening here. <laughs> are they, where are they all? Where's your family? Are they spread out everywhere? Are they like? Um, now, my, uh, not really. My, my younger sister and her family are in North Carolina, but the my other two siblings are near my parents in Dayton, basically Dayton Bellbrook area. Yeah, so most of them are still around there where I grew up, Dayton, Ohio. Not Dayton. Dayton. Um, I've been there a few times, but um, you know, usually it would be combining like with. You know, when I was writing for um, Western Carolina University, that's over there. So I would kind of combine those trips and those kind of things. But, uh, but no, not not often. Okay. We usually see everyone. Uh, you know, usually during the holidays in the Dayton area, everyone comes in. In the cold Dayton area. The cold Dayton area. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be in California for a few days. It's um, nice right now. No, I'm trying to like figure out what I'm gonna pack to wear. <laughs> I don't get to wear winter clothes here. Uh, true. True. I don't know if you want to bring winter clothes, but it'll get chilly. I mean, it's last week it was getting down into the upper 40s at night in San Francisco, but but that's like a that's 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 cold. It's cold, but you're not really out, you know. Yeah, you're not really during out. that. All right, Mr. Gaines. Yes, well, sir. All right, we're just talking. I was like, oh, well, that's right. We're doing a thing. Um, so, um, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. 
Of course, of course. Any, any time to help you out. Ah, this is just so, like, again, you're one of those people, I'm like, I don't know he would do it. Let's just throw him the bone. Oh, in. stop. How and long have you known me? A few years. <laughs> right, true. No, but you know. Of course. Man, you're a busy man, so I wasn't sure. But I'm so glad that you are here. Um, and then today's topic is just, I just called it visual design. You know, I want to kind of leave it open for us to discuss and go whichever direction we feel um, needs a little bit more discussing and attention. So, kick it off. Kick it off. Um, should we just? Well, to you, let's ask that. Um, to you, what is what is visual design? And you know, what when you, when someone says visual design, what does that encompass? What does it cover? Um, what are the things that you should be concerned about when you're a visual designer? Um, as with most of the, the questions that you'll ask, the, the answer will probably start with it depends. <laughs> but um, in, in general, I think when people think of visual designers, and it's changed over time, you know, um, I often use the example that a mentor of mine said once a long time ago, um, you know, we used to be just putting the pieces of the puzzle together and that's now become, and this will give you a hint of what time frame you sit in, it's now become the Rubik's Cube, right? Because there's so many more uh, things that you have to incorporate into your, your, your composition that increases exponentially the challenges as well as the rewards, right? So, you know, visual design can be anything depending on what you're tasked with doing. So if you're tasked with writing the, the drill, um, that, you know, that's obviously one thing you got to just move the people around, make sure the musicians are, are set up successfully so they can achieve what you're asking them to do from a musical standpoint, um, as well as the color guard if, or auxiliary, or if you have one of those, um, you know, that's just as important a part um, when it comes to composition, um, if not more so visually, you know, um, in today, it hasn't always been that way, as you remember where, you know, they the uh, proverbial arc behind the band that was so popular for for a, for a while. Um, thankfully, we've we've started to get away from. No, not started. We've we've been getting away from that for a while. But uh, um, so yeah. So I mean, design is it's basically it it, it serves a purpose. Like you have a, a mission with design. A little bit different differentiate that from art, right? I mean, art can be design, obviously, but design has a specific purpose. Art sometimes does, doesn't necessarily have to, you know, it could just be an expression of whatever you're feeling, you know, at the time. Design is more kind of thinking of putting something together with specific tasks for a specific purpose. In a, in a, yeah, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's also compositionally pleasing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, so if someone is exploring the idea of doing this, you know what I'm saying? Whether it's just for fun or actually to, you know, make a career out of it. What are some, and you'll have to kind of like, because if you've got so much experience, you know, if you kind of think back to like, okay, what are some of the things that you needed to figure out or you wish you would have learned first or sooner? What are the, the, the main things that, you, the tools that you were going to need as you a designer? I have... I have a top 10 list that I had put together for someone who had written to me uh, asking about, you know, what, what can I do if I want to, you know, this is like, 
I, I want to be a drill designer. I'm starting at zero. What do I do? And so number one, <laughs> um, one, one, watch as many videos as you can. Watch everything. Study the things you like. Analyze the things you don't. Find your favorite designers. Find your least favorite designers. Try to see what you're drawn to, what you're not drawn to. Um, learn about what you're not drawn to to see if there's something you're missing, or maybe it's just you know aesthetically not your thing. But just have a wide range of um, influences coming your way, so that you can um, gravitate towards something you like. Um, and initially, you would pro you'll probably speak with that language, but then you'll you'll learn to develop your own voice, right? Uh, so that's the first thing. Just expose yourself to as many different videos and, and media um, as possible to, to get an understanding of what, what the activity is that you're looking to design in and um, what, what the different variations of the craft are. Because that's going to be eventually like your library of inspiration, pretty yeah. much, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, and you can learn uh, from doing that. You, you can learn from other people's mistakes. Like if you see something like, oh, that did not work at all. Why did that not work? I need to remember not to do X, Y, Z, or holy cow, that was the best thing I've ever seen. How can I do something like that, but with a twist to make it my own? So yeah, you, you kind of develop the, the um, you know, you, you internalize those kind, of, um, those kind of things. So you have a base from which to draw when you actually do start to um, design. Okay, I'm gonna write these down. Number two, um, I always encourage people to study principles of design, right? Uh, in, in, in the art world, in any kind of art, there's principles of design and they all apply to what it is we do. You know, um, you can take a class in it, you can take an art class. Um, it certainly helped, I, I went to art school, you know, in my late twenties, um, basically just, you know, I just wanted a backup uh, career in case the whole pageantry thing didn't work out. And so I went to art school and um, which sounds fun, I wanted a backup career in case, didn't work out. I go to art school, but but it was for you know it's when like web design was coming on on the scene, whatever. But um, but part of it too was I wanted to study more. When when I was younger, a mentor of mine had uh, um, suggested a book to me, and there, there's there's all these books that are like principles of design, just basic 101. You know, pick pick up one of those books, and I had I, I found it actually. This version was from like 205, 205, 2005. Um, and like I said, there's a million out there. So don't like rush out, oh, I gotta get that book. But it's just, you know, something like this that's, it's just mm -hmm. design basics. And it's, it, you know, it's great. It takes you through um, just all kinds of, you know, it takes you through different uh, pieces of art and how design principles apply to those things. And even just looking at these pictures, you can see how so much of it could apply to what it is we do when it comes to things like, you know, creating, um, you know, repetition like this photo or, or emphasis or contrast, you know, how to create unity, um, how, to, how to create emphasis. That's a big thing, you know, especially in our world when it comes to, uh, you know, good design. So I would recommend either taking a, a you know, a one-on-one course or picking up a book like that. Or nowadays, you know, there's so many videos, you can just go to YouTube or whatever and, and find those things as well, or online, Google, those, those kind of things. But pick up something and try to figure out how that applies to what it is we do. And I think, again, you're kind of building, you, you have the awareness and now you're building the, the knowledge of what it takes to design. Um, you'd ask what I wish I would have known. I wish I would have studied that before I started rather than the other way around. I kind of started started understanding why things work but didn't really have the, the education or knowledge to know exactly why it was. And then I started reading books like that and it was like, oh, that's why that works or that's why that doesn't work. You know, those kind of uh... things. 
So yeah, I wish I would have done okay. a little bit more of that. But uh, number three, you ready for three? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> learn pieware, you know, I mean, or, ah. or you know, that's the only, that's the only uh, tool I've ever used a computer uh, application I've ever used. There are a couple others out there. Uh, I've never tried them, so I can't tell you if they're good or not. Pyware is definitely the um, kind of the the tool of choice for most drill drill designers, as well as people who do things like you know Super Bowl halftime, begin opening opening of the Olympics, those kind of things. It's a good tool. Um, it wasn't always there, and I brought a fun little example of the way it used to happen. Yes, this is a ruler. It's so grungy, you can't even see. Oh yeah, you can, you can see the tick marks. Like you literally would have to take a pencil if you wanted to draw an arc and you would trace the arc along, you, well, you'd set the ruler however you wanted it. And then you would trace along it. And then, you ready for this? Once you drew that on the, on the paper, you would take something like this and set it, you know, set it whatever the interval was, say it was like a three-step oh. interval or whatever. And you would have to like, part of one is a pencil, the other is the, like the point. And you would just like have to kind of go dot by dot and, and make the little slashes where each person was at a three-step interval around the arc. Then you would go back and depending on the person, um, you know, either draw on a little dot or just leave the slash and number, you know, flute number 24, 25, 26, 27, you know, all the way through. So you can see how, how time consuming that was, right? And that was all done on this kind of paper. This is actually the opening set of the Cavaliers. This, Steve Brubaker wrote this, but I don't know if you can see. Oh my gosh. You know, like each dot you had to write and fill in. And now, you know, all that can be done with click, 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 and it's done. As opposed to oh what I just gosh. described for, you know, so. You know, I, I remember like right before I switched to computer, what maybe I was writing an opener for Laster High School and there was like, you know, the flute section was, you know, 124, 125, or whatever, you know, and you know, your fingers are like all, all swollen and stuff. So that's what it used to be done, kids. Oh my gosh. I haven't seen one of those <laughs> things in a long time. What is it called? A, the, the uh, is it the con uh, protractor? No, no, no. Protractor. Uh, uh, no, that's not right either. Protractor is one of those little, Oh, what's it called? The compass? Ruler. No, I don't know. Someone, someone will answer in the in the in the comments. It was called that thing oh I used. Oh god! Yeah, uh, I couldn't figure it out. I the pin would always move for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had this whole set. I thought it was so cute, and now it just looks like. Oh you my know, god! Someone said it looks like what Dexter would use before he would do his thing on that TV it's show. Like, it's like one of those things that you can give a five-year-old be like, here, what do you think this is? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you know, there's no animation. You would just you would just look at a page and look at another page and try to figure out where you wanna go and just imagine the, uh, you know, the animation. But, um, but yeah, so the next thing I would do, learn, learn how to use the tool, learn how to use the tool. Um, once you're comfortable with the tools, number four, Take an old drill that you have, take an old drill that you have that not you don't have to be one you wrote, it could be anything, and input it into Pyware, because then you're just getting more and more comfortable with the tool, right? Um, then number five, study scores, develop an understanding for how to stage the instruments for success, right? It helps to be a musician. That's another thing that, you know, I'm glad I had a musical background before I started writing drill, because I, I think that's important. I mean, it is you can learn, 
how to do it. It doesn't mean, it, it just gives you a step up, you know, to start with. Uh, in a similar way, I feel like I was lucky to um, have March Color Guard and Winter Guard before I started writing Drill so that I already had the understanding of how color guards needed to be staged to set them up for success. Whereas um, a lot of drill writers that started out around the time with me were more like um, uh, uh, instrumentalists and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so they had that that uh, learning curve to figure out how to stage the color guard. So um, I was glad that I had that knowledge before I started that. But oh. yeah. That, I'm so sure that's then, important. It, yeah, it really has helped me a lot. I mean, I, I started staging Winter Guard before I started the outdoor, um, you know, band kind of scene. Okay. Um, but, but yeah. Um, do you do pieware for indoor stuff too? Is that uh, not a thing? It, it, it depends. The, the short answer is no, um, depending. I, I do use it for... Um, See, a lot of the, the indoor stuff that I do is more, it's kind of like a world-class level where I have a team that, I, that I'm used to working with. And so mm -hmm. it's a more of a collaborative process. So I'll go to rehearsal and just start playing around. And then, you know, like you would be there and say, oh, what if this? I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do this. What do you think about that? And just the back and forth is what I enjoy about that process as well. It's just kind of, it's a smaller group. So you know the performers and those kind of things. Um, you can absolutely do it in Pyware, and, and a lot of people do more so on the uh, indoor drumline wind side, I think, probably. Uh, I don't want to generalize too much, but you, you can absolutely do that. You can set it up like um, when, when we were doing the last thing in Japan, you know, Pyware helped me set up, um, I think I sent you some of the screenshots. They helped me set up the stage in Pyware that we were using so that we could play with some different ideas for the props we were using, right? So there's a yeah. lot of great, great. And the other thing that, that sometimes happens is, um, you know, like when, when I would do Aimachi wins or color guard, I would do most of it kind of on the spot type of, I mean, you have an idea going in what you want to do, but, but to actually compose it is more on the spot. And then there would be someone there who would be watching what I was doing. And once I kind of moved on, they would input it into Pyware, what I just did. So that, you know, when I left, they, they had a thing that showed all the different coordinates or if they, you know, a lot of people switching in and out because people are working or whatever. Um, they would have coordinates and those kind of things. So it's definitely useful in all situations. Um, in terms of my own personal process, um, I use it more for the larger outdoor groups. And for indoor, I generally use it more to see what something's gonna look like. Like if someone has a floor design, I'll, I'll input it into there and send them something that looks like it's in UD Arena or whatever the, you know, the, the arena you're gonna be performing in. So you can kind of get a look at it or maybe put colors in there to see what they'll look like, uniform on the floor and those kind of things. It's really useful for that as well. Wow, okay. Yeah. Just more organic, okay. Um, what else? Try to get on marching band staff if you can. Um, volunteer, you know, when, when you're young and just, you know, getting into it, um, offer your help. Because I think, you know, one of the biggest things that, that um, helps get gigs is just networking. And so if you're on a marching band staff, you know, get to know people who are really good at their, their job, right? Um, and even, you know, uh, my mentor was Steve Brubaker, but we never really sat down like, okay, now I'm gonna teach you to write drill. It was just me constantly watching what he was doing. And every time I had the opportunity, I was a pest and I would ask him about things like, why do you do that? Or why do you do this? Um, so it, I think that that's applicable to anyone who's starting out, just 
volunteer your time because it's an investment into your craft, into your education. Once you see people who are really good at what they do, you can be watching, studying, learning, and also you're getting to know them. So they're, they're getting to know you. And if you're really good at, at what you're being tasked to do, they're going to recommend you moving forward, right? So I think, you know, networking in, is a byproduct of you investing into your education by volunteering your services. And even better if you can get paid, you know, if the band has a budget, okay. but, but uh, certainly I don't think that should be a deal breaker if you're looking to just learn, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and offer to write drill without charging. You know, once you feel like you've got a good um, handle on it, develop your own portfolio, you know, re rewrite a drill, take, take a, a drill that you help teach maybe and think and take the music and do a whole different drill to it that this is how i would have done it so you have a portfolio you can show people and um you know look i, I can do this and it's high quality and then you know people will start giving you opportunities um and then the last ones are just you know join online groups if you're on facebook join the you know uh pieware community or drill design community because people are constantly asking each other for help on things or posting videos and saying what do you think about this or you know what interval do you use for uh you know bass drums or those those kind of things um and finally just go to a lot of shows and you know, it's kind of the way we started watch a lot of videos go to a lot of shows go to indoor shows go to outdoor shows know what's happening in the, the activity at large decide where you think that you want to focus your time but I gotta say that everything overlaps, as you well know, between the indoor and outdoor activities. So as long as you have an awareness of what's happening in the activity, it'll, it'll serve you well. Mm. And I do have a bonus. Do you want the bonus one? Yeah. The bonus one is once you're established, help younger people who are interested in doing what you do and continue the circle of design life. And that. And that is why we have a free summit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. You're gonna have to send me that list. I didn't. I only wrote down eight. Okay. But um, I, I may yeah. skip them. I don't know. That's okay. Um, awesome. Let's see. let's take a look at some of the questions that maybe sure people have kind of brought up. Well, yeah, thanks to all who put questions in that in the comments. Yeah. It's always it's always helpful for things like this when you're kind of talking into the abyss and not sure exactly who, you know, what can find your, something helpful. What your audience is looking for. Oh, people are saying it's a compass. <laughs> Didn't I say that? That was one of the that was one of you the words I used, right? It. Okay. You did say Thank that, you. yes. <laughs> Because I, I was like, it's a compass. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's the north, south, east, west it's, thing. It is definitely <laughs> a compass. How funny. Okay. Um, trying to see. If, see, it's doing that thing again where it doesn't really show me all the comments. I know that one of them was talking about small bands, right? Mm, yes. I think that was one of, one of the first ones. I don't remember the specific question. I think it was more... Um, um, some ideas for really just designing, designing with small, 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 small bands. Um, and I think specifically ones that don't really have a budget to use props and those kind of things. Because, you know, that, I mean, that's the immediate answer that, that people usually go to with, you know, what should I do with small bands? Because it's a good answer. It's, you know, if you can use props to enclose your, your space, space, your environment, 
it does kind of give it a better feel, right? So you don't have this wide open expanse. It's not necessary. Well, there's two things. One, if you wanna do that um, and you don't have a budget, you can use really simple things. You know, I used to judge a lot in, in Thailand and, and Japan, I think too, um, certainly Thailand where they would have different classes and they would just come put out construction cones to limit the size of the, the grid or the field for this particular class or this particular, and I think they were based on school sizes. So they did their show on the on the big field, but they had you know construction cones that limited the size. You know, you can certainly do something like that. You can do something really cheaply. Just just have like PVC poles that kind of outline your space. If you don't want to do that, that's cool. There are other ways to do it. You can you can. Um, this is still just talking about the environmental part of it, um, but uh, you know you can you can define your space through your own composition. A lot of it, uh, if you're careful about the way you arrange you could, you know, for the first 30 seconds or minute, maybe it's a small ensemble that's playing, in which case you can use the, the bodies of the performers to create um, barriers or walls or, or shapes or compositions that you can stage everyone else within, right? Um, depending on how, how large the, the ensemble you have is. Um, small band can be, you know, anywhere from just a few players to, you know, I think I was actually looking up uh, to the last normal year we had 2019, I think the smallest band I wrote for had 18 woodwinds and eight brass. Wow. And eight guard. Yeah. And then the largest I wrote for that year was, um, 295 total members. So, you know, it was a wide range. Um, but the, the the smaller group that I write for, well, it's Father Ryan in in uh, Tennessee, and they're just they're just always so creative with their their programs, and um, they do tend to use a lot of props, though, you know, to offset how small they are. You know, it's a small Catholic school, uh, which I, I I went to a, a Catholic school as well. We had about a thousand, maybe a little bit less than a thousand uh, people in school when I went there, but um, so I have I have a soft place in my heart for for small groups that. And I think the key to small groups is choose your programs wisely, you know, well, the key to competitive success. If, if your goal is, well, this, this would actually work both ways. I, I find that like smaller bands, the ones that really succeed are the ones that put on shows that you want to see again. And I know that sounds like common sense, but like picking like a charming show that, that people just like smile and love those tend to do better both you know just people watching it as well as you know if you're in a competition you know people want to see it again because it's it's it makes them feel good and you, you know you get that that effectiveness across even though you're small or because you're small you know part of that can lend itself to that charm as well um some of the other things you know again there's a wide range of what's considered small um if you have a band that uh is is pretty, you know, 20 members or something like that. One of the things that actually frees you up a little bit as opposed to big bands is mixing of instruments. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but when you've only got, you know, a clarinet, couple baritones, whatever, you know, by definition, you're already mixing up the instrumentation. It's not like the clarinet is not within the clarinet section. If you have that, that number of instruments, you're probably gonna keep them pretty contained in the pocket so they sound good. And so you don't have to worry quite as much about um, some of the, uh, the issues with the larger bands, like, oh God, I got two, two trombones in the flute section or so, you know, something like that. Um, you know, a little bit, if you have more than one instrument in each section, I would recommend, um, you know, trying to keep 
those players together because with such a small band and given the personality and the and the development of the high school student, right? They're inherently insecure usually. And so if they can be playing and hearing someone else playing their part, they're more likely to have that confidence to play out as opposed to I'm playing the flute part and the only other flute in the band is on the other side of the field. I'm not gonna be as confident, <laughs> confident you know? So th right. those kind of things you do wanna think about. Um, uh, someone had asked about like without using uh, the bigger forms and I, I, I took it to mean kind of like the drill pictures. Uh, smaller bands, you can do that. But I think if you concentrate more on the the aesthetic of it, the composition of it, and less about creating a pretty picture. So so you, I mean, you can do that, but maybe save save like the the accessible geometric picture for specific moments, specific resolutions, specific effects, and concentrate more on how does this motion work? Is this is this pleasing? Is this keeping me interested? Um, those kind of things, as opposed to thinking that every eight counts, I have to hit a picture. Um, you don't have to do that, you know. Um, uh, and, and not everyone has to move all the time, too. You know, to keep it interesting, if you only have 20 people in the entire ensemble, um, and we haven't even talked about whether you have a color guard or not, but, but think about dividing it. And again, this, this goes back to being able to work with your arranger as well, or your composer, um, giving you the freedom to sometimes these people don't play. So we can do different things with them. Um, especially if you have someone like a Michael Rosales or someone who is there that can help you with movement, there's a ton of things you can do with a small band that um, are so effective, really because of the small numbers, right? Um, you know, whether that's while the woodwinds are playing, the brass are doing movement or they're, they're lifting up a color guard member or doing non-traditional drill things. And I think that would be the, the key maybe for the person that asked the question is to kind of get out of the mindset of writing Here's eight counts of drill. I'm going to move to the next picture, to the next picture, to the next picture. Um, you know, larger bands do have an advantage in that, just because of their numbers, there's a lot more um, variety in that particular process. But uh, when it comes to motion and aesthetics, small bands have a lot, uh, uh, a lot of possibilities on their palette that you can you can dive into, for sure. You can create more like theatrical events, for sure. It's absolutely in and out yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah, and that's part of the pro programming of it too. You know, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, picking the show that people want to see and, and starting out to your point, like, well, we don't have, you know, the 100, 150 players of the school down the street, but what we do have is we've got this great singer. Okay, let's build a show around the singer. In fact, let's make it theatrical. In fact, let's just have one little prop that's a curtain. And you know those kind of that a dad can can make, and it's not going to cost a lot or whatever. And just start you know kind of spitballing from there about how your show is going to be different. Don't try to compete with larger groups on their level. You got to just be smarter. Uh, everybody loves clever. Everybody loves clever. If you can do something that's clever, you're going to stand out, right? Yes. Be memorable. I love I love the concept of keeping it charming, though. I think that's so. Amazing, you know, because you see a smaller band, you're like, oh, they're a small band. But if you if they make you feel good about watching, they will be the ones you'll tell your friend about, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I remember, like, I'd never thought of it that way, but like when I've gone to like these conferences and judged some of these band shows, the smaller bands, if they give me that sense of, you know, oh my god, they're so charming, I remember them. 
you remember them. And, and you, you realize, at least people who are good at their craft when it comes to judging, will realize what it takes for a small band like that to pull off what they're pulling off you know, relative to the challenges. It's not a slam against large bands because they have their own thing. They got 150 kids to try to get to do this, right? This band only has 20. However, there are challenges that this band with only 20 have and have to pull off that the large band doesn't have to worry about. You know, if two people are out from this band for the show, it's a big deal. If two yeah. people are out for the 150, you know, there's ways to, to fix that. So um, they each have their challenges, but, but yeah, I think it's more important for the smaller band to program intelligently and cleverly than it is for the larger band that can rely on some of the staples of the marching band, you know, effect repertoire to get them through. What about, what about indoor like groups and smaller groups? Any suggestions for those guys? Like winter guards? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some of the same things I just talked about apply, but when indoor, um, and I think part of it will depend on whether we're talking indoor percussion winds versus color guard. Um, but uh, overall, it's, it's kind of the same thing where once you know what you have to work with, you know, in your, in your elements, you know, it's like you're, you're cooking, you've got all, all your uh, foods and you're, you're chopped up, you know, you've got it all spread out. You have to figure out what you can make with all of that at that point, right? So you look at the, the program and over time, you know, a larger group can rely on things like, okay, right here, you know, the music's really kicking. We're gonna, you know, all flag feature and we're just gonna blow them away by how large the group is, how much fabric's out there, how, you know, the, the, the more, more, more kind of approach. Smaller groups have to be more careful because, you know, you come out, you've got, um, I think the smallest guard I ever taught was Carol in 95, we had 11 members. Um, and we had to be careful. And, you know, part of that process that, um, part of that process was utilizing individuals and giving individuals characters and giving individuals kind of a choreographic identity to use as different um, effects or compositional devices so that when those individuals actually did come together and do a unison moment, like a unison flag feature, um, it was really impactful. Cause yeah. it's kind of like, you know, walking, walking through a desert and suddenly you get a glass of water. You're like, oh my God, that was awesome. Whereas if we did like three different flag features before that, that one would be like, okay, yeah, it's another, you know, <laughs> saw yeah. it, those kind of things. So I think you, you need to be careful to, you need to understand um, what is gonna create effect with a small group and use those moments sparingly and, and again, cleverly. Awesome, um, and props. <laughs> Yeah, we, we did use props, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to though, you do not have to. Um, you know, it's all about composing. Just depends what you wanna say as a, as a, an artist in the, the kind of that, that uh, you know, it's like, it's like no one, no one sets out, no design team sets out to create a boring show, right? No one's like right. this year, let, let's be really boring. You know, yeah. nobody does that. So you gotta find that, um, intersection between the artist or the design team's uh, need for self-expression and the audience's need for fulfillment, right? And that can that the fulfillment can happen in a lot of different ways. Um, and even using the the the, uh, the word audience is kind of painting with too broad of a brush because there's yeah. so many different people in the, in the audience, right? That that react to different things. 
And I find that people react to quality, right? Mm. People react to quality in a, in a lot of different ways. So if you can figure out where that intersection is, um, you know, and some people, and, and, and figure out those layers, like shows should be fairly layered so that, you know, mom and dad who maybe have only seen two shows in their life are gonna find something to like about it, as well as people who've done it for decades who can find something like, oh, wow, that was really sophisticated and not everyone's gonna get that. But if you have those layers in there, then it is easier to find that intersection between self-expression and, and audience fulfillment. Mm. Love that. Okay. Someone wants to check the Facebook announcement from November 19. Are there, um, I just kind of pulled some of these questions. Um, how has the tools of drill design changed over the years? Show how I used to write. Oh, that, you just did that. But uh, how has drill design changed over the years? Yeah, but I think you just kind of showed us a little bit of where you're. <laughs> uh, well, no, the, that was, that was, those were the tools. If, if they're asking about how designs changed over the years, designs changed a lot. I mean, even, even on my own, my own path, certainly, um, you know, as you know, Michael, what, what we do at Vanguard is very different from what me and the team did at, Cavaliers even just, you know, a decade ago. And a lot of that has to do with going, actually going back to the beginning of this, where we talked about doing a puzzle versus a Rubik's cube is now we have so much more, um, so many more elements to play with, given that we have people like you that are bringing this choreography to the table and, and performers like we get nowadays that have that capability to do these movements. So you, you're not just relying on going from point A to point B to create these really cool patterns, which everyone still loves that. However, you know, it's, it's, we've, we've also got a verticality to play with at this point too. Um, not even talking about the whole prop thing, but just the, the, um, the choreographic elements. And so you've got, you know, drill, you've got choreography, they're not mutually exclusive. And there's so, there, there's, you know, an inf infinite number of possibilities in different combinations of that. You know, part of the group can be doing drill while the other's doing choreography. You can be do drill with choreography, which is something that fascinates me. Just that that idea of of choreographic pattern in drill. Mm -hmm. You know, I um, I started experiment experimenting with that. Um, uh, I remember being really intrigued by it back. I want to say it was probably around 2007 when uh, Cavaliers did the Billy Joel show, and I started uh, as a motif throughout the show we had the horn players just do a simple like, you know, color guard roll into the ground and back up, right? And uh, I remember being fascinated by trying to use that in different ways throughout. And some people at that point were kind of skeptical, like, I don't get what, what's happening there. But there's something in that where, where it kind of morphed the drill into a living, more expressive thing. You know, when you kind of uh, glaze your eyes and look over the whole thing, it's not just moving like that, but, but it's kind of like, um, it has its own expression to it when you can add choreography within within the the drill presentation, and uh, you know I think that that's it, it brings a whole different look to it, and and those are the kind of things I like to um, experiment with these days. It's just compositional techniques that 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 keep me interested, because I think if I'm bored with something, then it's going to show in the ultimate design, and the audience is going to be bored with it. Like I don't think it will be fulfilling, you know, like we were just talking about. Yeah, there's, I feel like definitely a, a different sense of breadth, you know, of what design is these days. You know, like you're saying, like people, when members are rolling in out of the ground, you can feel that breadth 
um, on the field yeah. versus more linear stuff. Um, and yeah, absolutely. The performers these days are just way more versatile. And they're, I feel like we've just barely touched, you know, what these performers could possibly do in the future. So absolutely. that's really exciting. It, it is. And it's, I mean, it's really amazing to think about it. It's like, where do these people come from? <laughs> you know, you, you talk about like, you know, on Broadway having the triple threat or whatever. That's what the, the I, I won't even call them kids. That's what these young adults are. They're triple quadruple threats. You know, they, they, they're, you know, high quality musicians. They're high quality movers. Um, even those that come and they're not quite at that level movement wise, they come ready and hungry to learn and catch up so that they can be part of the magic that you can create by combining those different art forms. Yeah, for sure. They're like storytellers. Yeah, All yeah, right. absolutely. Did you see any? Are you, are you reading a question or are you asking me if I saw? If no, I saw no, I was gonna ask. I'm looking through the question again, like it doesn't show me. Um, oh, that's okay. I, I wrote down some of them. Uh, okay. That, that, uh, it doesn't matter. Oh, wait, there's some, I was starting out for visual designers. Uh, ideas to create a show with zero transitions. Um, lots of <laughs> coffee, lots of late nights. Um, it's a good question though, because, <laughs> Because I think I think that 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 whole thing is obviously the goal is is you don't want to transition right you you don't want anything to look like a transition. Obviously, there's times where you're like, all right, we got to transition to a different mood. We got to transition to uh, you know a different uh, section that's going to take over. We've got to transition color guard on different kinds of equipment. And so at that point, um, I guess my suggestion would be to start with, um, I mean, just look where you are. I, I I was about to say something that I guess paints too broad of a brush. A, a lot of times I, uh, my process is, it, it's hard for me to give people information on something further in the show um, until I know where we are before that, if that makes sense. So when you're talking about transitions, there's gonna be these moments. The way I do it is, you know, knowing what's coming up for sure, having a, like a production sheet or whatever, so that you can set yourself up so you don't find yourself in a, in a situation that, um, you know, the color guard is overlaid around the entire field, but they have to be on a new piece of equipment in, you know, 16 counts or something like that. So you got to be able to look ahead to do that. Um, having said that, just transitioning is not always the best idea when you can look at, um, go to your concept. Is there a way we can use the concept of the show to make this a moment instead of a transition, right? It's still a transition, but the transition becomes a moment in and of itself. Um, uh, for example, the uh, when we did uh, a show called Machine with the Cavaliers, you know, just to transition to rifle or off rifle, I think to rifle, um, you know, it became a conveyor belt line where they would just pass it from the sideline, you know, whereas, you know, in, in a normal situation, a judge would be like, okay, that's pretty functional. You're just passing the equipment down. But because it was a machine, it worked. It was within the concept. So that's why I say go back to your concept, which is basically your mission statement and uh, for, the, for the show and see if there's anything there that can help you out conceptually first. You know, once you can figure out conceptually what's going to help you, then, you know, the next spot on the hierarchy probably is going to be the, the compositional part of it. How can I do this in a way that's, that is good design? Um, and will uh, not only 
serve the function, but will create a nice uh, compositional moment. I've noticed um, some groups kind of make a little mini production out of you know little moments between this um, this piece and this piece. Um, is that like a trend now, where like um, the music people create music to not call it transition, but uh, you know a part B of mm -hmm. this that allows us to kind of segue or an outro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's a good point. I, I think that, yeah, I don't know if it's a trend. I think, because I think it's something that's been used, you know, in the art world. I mean, you go to, you know, a ballet or something, you know, many times there is kind of that outro music while the prima ballerina is kind of like dancing off the stage and the next people are coming in kind of a thing. Um, which I just always get irritated at things, <laughs> at those kind of things. Cause I'm like, I, I'm just like, there's so many people in this, in this pageantry world, so many designers, so many of our colleagues that have learned how to stage and to uh, avoid transitions, you know, figure out how to keep a cohesive composition while still doing the necessary things to move on within the program. So, you know, when, when, when I go to a, a Cirque show or, you know, San Francisco Ballet or something like that. And it's like, it's just the lights go off and it, you can tell everyone's scattering and resetting and then the lights go on and it's right there. And I'm like, that's not fair. Like <laughs> my, my, my friends are so much better at that than what you just did. <laughs> can't you we know? just black out? I, yeah. I, can't we just turn the lights on? Yeah, exactly. Or, or um, I, I did a clinic in Japan once where uh, one of the, the uh, twirlers from um, Ka, from Cirque was there. And we had a great conversation about transition, all that stuff. And I said, well, we don't have the luxury of the floor sinking down <laughs> you know, so, so, so that you know, the tubas can go away and you can bring in the flutes from backstage. You know, we just don't have that luxury. But on the flip side, that's what's made so many people in this activity so good at what they do. And you know, I, I wish that more of the um, traditional art forms would really look at some of what our colleagues do throughout the activity and understand how good they are at what they do. You know, that's, it's something I've really, really started um, thinking about a lot over the last like, you know, decade or whatever, just going to professional shows where there are some tricks of the trade that, you know, everyone in our activity know that professionals, now Grant, there's a lot on the flip side too. There's a reason they're professionals in their craft. Right. But just in terms of the, the staging of it and, and how to transition from one thing to the other, um, I would hold up, you know, a lot of the designers in our activity to anyone. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember definitely moments where we're doing, you know, the blast production and we finish a production. We're like, all right, we got to get everyone off the stage. And then someone goes, well, we could just put a pin light on one person. <laughs> and then exactly. everyone can walk away. Exactly. <laughs> I know. It's, it's so not fair. I mean, it's so fair. It's, uh, right. it's great, but it's not fair. I think you should try that with one show. Everyone go, look over there. <laughs> Uh, no, I, well, I think, I think people used to do that. Like, don't you remember when our guard was like, and rifle feature and everyone just points and just stands there, you know, <laughs> focuses over there. Yeah, I, th I think we've had our share of that too, but, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think there's, and I think there's a lot, you know, I think you see more and more of, uh, I don't know if mainstream is the right word, but you know, the world recognizing some of the things that, that we all do in the activity and incorporating them into more mainstream Production. And there, I mean, I think we, I mean, we still do 
the look over there, you know, but we just mm -hmm. have yeah. figured out ways to go look over there, Canon, Ripple, 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 <laughs> right? You know, pay so. no attention to the rifles mm -hmm. rippling over here. Watch the flags, pretty fabric, Watch the flags, fabric. more flags. Yeah, all right. What else sure. do we have? Other questions on here? Uh, let's see. Um, how beneficial is it to create a team full of trust when designing a show? Uh, I, it's incredibly important, especially if you if you want to design. Uh, well, really, at, at any level. Um, but uh, you know, there's there's some situations where you can't have a team, right? If you're working at a small school that has zero budget and you're a director and you've got to put the show together and you've got to buy the flags, and I get all that. And God love you. You know, you're doing the Lord's work. But um, you know, if you if you have the luxury of being able to have a team, and uh, especially for you know like world class in whatever activity you are. Um, you know, developing that trust and that tribe, I guess. I know it's kind of overused at this point, but I still, I think yeah. there's no better word for it than, than finding your tribe, right? And over the years, um, I still work with the same people that I worked with, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and and it's, it's easy, you know, we'll fight like brothers and sisters, right? But it's easy because we don't have to have titles. We don't have to, you know, everyone just kind of knows okay, you need to go now and do your thing. You know what I mean? Or, okay, you're up, you do your thing. Or, or uh, we're all working together or who's going to take, you know, if, I, if I'm in, um, it's just so comfortable just knowing what the specialty of the people around you are and knowing that they're much better at what they do than you are at what they do, you know, and you're better at what you do than they are. And once you, once you develop that and develop that trust and it's not, it's not like a threatening thing, that's when the, that's when the magic happens, right? Um, and, and you, you have each other's backs, you know? I know, you know when I work at Imachi, it's for the Winter Guards, basically me and, and Jim Moore and Seishi. And it's it's one of those where, you know, if I'm staging or I have an idea for some some moment and I'm getting stuck, you know, Jim will walk in and be like, you know, how you doing? You, you wanna keep going? Or I, I can take him for a little bit. And I might be like, yeah, I need a break or whatever. And then he'll go play and he'll come up with something and I'll come back. I'm like, that's the missing piece. Okay, I got it, I'll take it now. You know, those kind of things. Um, so you find that trust, that back and forth. Um, um, you and I had that during the summer, you know, in some of those moments where we can go back and forth of, I'll see something you do and be like, you might say, is it okay if they're a little tighter here or if they don't move quite as far because I wanna do this thing. And, you know, the, that kind of collaboration makes the, 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 the prop, products better because if i was just going to write drill and you were just going to fill it in um i think carlo calls it like putting the icing on or, or he's got a great expression for that it becomes sterile right it, it's it's just it's mechanical but if it's a back and forth with your team or mm -hmm. your friend or your collaborators um that's where the um that's where you really get the the magic you know Right. And I think people forget that, you know, to create it's 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 hard to find that it's hard to find that tribe. Right. You don't mm -hmm. it's especially for, you know, smaller groups. I can imagine, you know, like where you're pulling, you know, uh, people from to collaborate with is could be hard. But I've learned also the best collaborators are are people that I'm allowed to say my piece, but also I know when to go hold on, maybe my idea is not the best, you know, and being mm -hmm. okay with that. You have to be a good collaborator yourself to be able to find the people that, you know, are great to collaborate with. So I think sometimes people that's, forget that I, I have to be a good collaborator myself. So that's, 
that's a great point. Knowing when to let go, you know, I know some of the people that I worked with for years, you know, one of our rules is whoever's the most passionate about an idea. Like if you have conflicting ideas, you're like, oh, you're really excited about that. Okay, let's try that. You know, even though I had a different idea, I can let that go because I'm not like excited about it. It's just an idea. But this person's really passionate about doing this, this, you know, this other thing. So, so we kind of have a rule like whoever's the most excited, let's let's try that idea first and see see where that goes. Or maybe there's a combination of it and those kind of things. But, I mean, the other thing is as a, as a teacher, you know, is just keep your eye out for students who express any sort of interest. Intri- you know, it's it's that one performer mm-hmm. who's constantly asking you questions that hopefully will remind you of when you were that person, you know, pestering that person about things and just, or the person that's just watching everything you do, like really find, you know, keep an awareness, I guess, as you're teaching, because that student who's asking you all those questions could become your best collaborator in the next like five years, you know, or yeah, or could go out on their own and be the next Michael Rosales. So it's, it's, Yeah, yeah. Nur- nurture it, nurture it. Um, we had a question from, Matt had a business question. I thought it was a good one. Business advice when it comes to taxes, accounting, calendar planning for trips, communication <laughs> with directors, retirement, website, social media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that, I mean, that- Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so here's the thing, uh, you know, in all seriousness, if you want to make this a career and, and there's different there's different levels of doing this, right? You know, you've got people who do it as a hobby on the side that are completely fine doing one project once a year or whatever, you know, they don't. If you're gonna do this for a living, then, you know, all self-employment um, responsibilities apply. Right. So immediately, if you're going to be self-employed, assuming that's the case, I mean, there are some people who are employed doing this, but if you're self-employed, um, you need to right away take care of your own health insurance. Number one, get your health insurance. Number two, your retirement. The person who asked this question, you just ask, <laughs> I was a pest. I was a pest about start your retirement while you're young. Start it now. I don't care if it's $5 per month, just do it now. Right especially if you're going to be self-employed because you're not going to have that 401k that has a company matching, probably um, those kind of things. You, you basically just have to learn to take care of yourself and you have to learn to be uh, responsible enough that you um, have the self-discipline to put in the work, to put in the hours. You have to, because that's what pays your mortgage. You know, it's not, it's not just going in, you know, eight to five. Um, no, there's anything wrong with that. You know, I know a lot of us would kill for an eight to five job right now with everything that's happening. Right. But if you're not going to do that, um, you know, you have to have that self-discipline to be able to not be distracted by, by things to, you know, when your friends are at the bar down the street at happy hour, but you've got a deadline the next day, you have to be able to say, yeah, I can't, you know, this is more important now when I finish this project, then yeah, drinks are on me. Um, but yeah, taking care of all those life things, um, especially if you have a family, you know, um, you just have to be responsible. I'm, I'm certainly not a, uh, a tax expert or a financial investments person or an insurance expert, but I sought out all those people to help me when I started out. And I'm very grateful um, for their guidance to do that. And I would recommend anyone thinking about doing this for a living to start looking into all that right away. You know, Take care of yourself, take care of your future because the, the you of 20 years from now 
will be so thankful to the you of today if you do that. And that's all great information, even for anyone, you know, if you're a, a color guard, you know, choreographer or anything that you want to do this for your job, you know, it's a business. Mm -hmm. You got to look at it as business and you have to create your business atmosphere and make sure you're covered in all aspects. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And, and just really just the professionalism. Um, you know, I think when I was starting out in, in uh, the first, you know, decade or whatever, there weren't nearly as many people doing what we do for a living. Now there's a lot more, um, but it's still a lot of, a lot of it is still word of mouth. You know um, I mean, it's important to, with social media, you can kind of promote yourself and a website and all that, but really, you know, directors are going to call someone they trust and be like, Hey, do you, do you know anyone who's great at choreography for, for wins, you know? And if you have a great reputation of being, you know, creative on time, professional, um, then you're going to get the gigs, right? If you do a good job. I, I know that sounds like common sense, but uh, you'd be surprised how many people kind of fell out along the way just due to the fact that they were irresponsible. Yeah, simple thing. That's actually conversations we have a lot with, um, with dancers, you know, who want to dance professionally. Mm. You know, like they go through years and years of training at the studio, you know, but they go to LA and no one's kind of told them, you know, hey, this is a business. You have to kind of look yeah. at it yeah that way yeah it's not it's not just hanging out with friends anymore right because that's you know that's yeah. kind of how we all started to love what we do is because of the you know the camaraderie and the friendships along the way in addition to the craft but you know the the, the magic was created by a combination of that and just hanging out with friends and what happened before and after rehearsals and even and during rehearsals and whatever but um you know once you start once your life depends on it literally um, it is a different dynamic. It's not about the, the hanging out and partying as much as it is about the work. Yeah. Well, that actually answers other questions. Someone was asking about your typical workflow framework and staying organized and focused. Yeah, it depends. You have to be, well, everyone does it a little bit differently. I would say like during, um, especially I don't do as many groups um, in terms of marching bands once I started uh, doing the Santa Clara thing, um, but I still do quite a few. And even when I was doing a lot of bands, um, you know, it's, it's, it's being able to multitask and make sure you, you can provide as much um, communication with your clients as possible. Um, you know, I, my workflow is I try to send a production at a time. But once you get into, you know, part of the, part of the uh, nature of the beast is that there's a bottleneck in the calendar, right? Of when everybody needs their stuff. So there are times that, that you do need to be able to send, you know, a number of pages to someone and then send a number of pages to someone else and be able to transfer those things. So, um, you know, I do have a system where I, I try to make sure that all of my clients email me and don't text me about business things so that I can keep those emails. And every time I like in the morning, you know, get my copy, sit down at the desk. If I'm going to work on XYZ high school, I immediately go to that folder and read the last, you know, number of communications to make sure I remember every little thing. So I don't forget that, uh, that this band director emailed me that she lost a clarinet, you know, uh, three weeks ago that's easy to forget. And that's why I don't like people texting that kind of information is because I don't know how everyone else is, but I lose texts. I don't remember, you know, if it's an email, I have a filing system for that. Um, 
so uh, yeah, I, I always tell band directors, they're like, hey, just want to let you know, we lost, you know, or we, we added two flags. I'll be like, oh, that's great. Can you email me that so that it's in my file when I, you know, go back to start working on your project. So being able to multitask and yet take care of your clients at the same time um, it, it is important. Um, I don't, I forget if I, do you, no, did I go do you normally, or did I... no, no, you're good. Do you normally give um, your groups like a, a timeline of like, okay, you need to give me final numbers. I know I hear that conversation. I mean, I don't have to deal with it. I know I hear that conversation a lot of like, okay, we got to give him final numbers. And how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with people changing their numbers after that? Yeah, it, it depends. It depends on the, on the, on the group and the, the luxury of numbers of kids, right? For a smaller group, um, there's just, you know, they're dealing with, you know, Sally didn't show up to band camp. So now we have one clarinet instead of two. There's just nothing you could, you know, so I, I try to work with groups like that. With the larger bands that have the luxury of tons of kids, I generally recommend that directors um, be conservative when they send me numbers because you can always add kids into the show along the way, right? Um, but, uh, you know, once, uh, my general rule is once it's been written, any changes due to number changes is then up to the director or his his or her team. Uh, you know, if if you can catch me before I write anything, then then that's cool. But um, like I said, once once you get to the bottleneck, there's just not the time to go back and do those kind of things. But having said that, you know, not everyone is working on a scale in terms of numbers um, of groups. You know, like I was, especially you know, in, in the last ten years or whatever. If if you're only doing one, two, or three, then by all means, if you can, and I try to do that too, if I can and I have the time, I'll I'll help out people with that. Not an issue at all. But generally, I, my my clients have been with me for so long now that we're all friends, so they know that you know I'm not going to screw them over. They're not going to screw me over. Uh, in general, they try to help me out and say, "Hey, we lost a kid. We're, we'll take care of it." But just from now on, write for nine trumpets instead of ten. That's the best case scenario for me during that time of year. Um, but again, it, it kind of depends on the level of trust, depends on how you set up your contract, depends on how many groups you're writing, um, depends on the, the people at the, the group, if they have the capability to make fixes and, and those kind of things. So I know that answer was wishy-washy, but it, it depends on the, on the group.